Section 28 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand, translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter 7, Part 1. By nature, as by profession, Marcel was a foreseeing man. A man may be both practical and generous. Under the inspiration of those two qualities, he considered the situation of the lovers and talked to Julie. Madame, he said, taking both her hands with an affectionate kindliness, in which there was nothing offensive, begin by disregarding me entirely in this matter. If Julian and his mother are as brave and self-sacrificing as you, I shall admire the sacrifice instead of dissuading them. And first of all, do not exaggerate the future consequences of your action. Monsieur Antoine is a man of his word. That is certain. In good as in evil, he does what he promises. But the matter of his last will is a great problem because he is now on the downward slope of marriage. Surely it is a most extraordinary thing to see that old bachelor, a confirmed foe of women and of love, rush headlong into this matrimonial caprice in his declining years. As it bears the stamp of monomania, no promise, no resolution that he may make can protect him from it. He will find what he is seeking, be sure of that. Some titled woman or other, young or old, virtuous or not, beautiful or ugly, will allow herself to be tempted by his cash and will swallow all his property. So this simplifies the question, and you may put aside the consideration of our inheritance. There is nothing certain beyond the present facts, and you see, I am not at all interested. So let us consider these present facts, which are submitted for our consideration. They are of very serious consequence. I know Uncle Antoine. What he proposes to do, he does in twenty-four hours or never. Tomorrow he will be here, with documents all prepared, drawn up by himself in more or less barbarous style, but with not a dot over an eye missing that would make them good and binding incontestable in the eye of the law, which he knows better than I do myself. These documents will not set forth in any form of words the strange provision, unforeseen in legislation, that you shall formally break off relations with a certain person, but they may very well impose the condition that you are not to marry again without Monsieur Antoine's assent, and that, they will be revocable at once in case of rebellion on your part. So we must not hope to evade the stipulation which he demands. Moreover, your character is an assurance that you would not think of doing so. You are right, monsieur, said Julie with a sigh. I shall never make a promise and not keep it. Here we are, then, continued Marcel, face to face with an incredible, but very real, closely impending fact, conclusive concerning the existence of two persons who are dear to you, my aunt and Julian, 
since my reasoning places me outside of the reckoning. You must reflect seriously. Do you wish me to leave you alone for that purpose? Or will you allow me to say to you at once what I would have said to you an hour ago if you had taken me for a confidant before Monsieur Antoine appeared? Say it now, Marcel. You must tell me everything. Very well, madame. Let us suppose that, despite his anger, Monsieur Antoine outbids the Marchioness. See how straightened your circumstances will be. Two or three thousand francs a year. You marry Julian, who has nothing in the world but his arms, and soon you will be a mother, with Madame Thierry to support and care for, a servant for her and a nurse for yourself, and a manservant, unless Julian lays aside his brushes when the heavy work of the household is to be done, however modest it may be. You will certainly live honorably, for he will work. Madame Thierry will knit all the stockings for the family, and you will be economical. You will have a single silk dress and will wear calicoes. You will always walk when you go out, and you will not indulge yourself in a bit of ribbon without counting on your fingers to see if your little savings will stand it. That is how my wife began life when I purchased my office. Well, I can tell you, madame, that we were not very happy then, and yet we loved each other dearly. My wife was not vain. We had never been well-to-do, and we did not know what luxury was. We knew how to go without, but we were anxious. My wife, because I worked half the night and trotted about, tired out and with the cold in my head, at all hours and in all weathers, and I, because she had to go without fresh air and good food, forever harnessed to household duties and the labors of maternity. Each of us suffered from constant painful solicitude for the other. I give you my word that the more dearly we loved each other, the more worried we were, and the more we lacked real happiness. We lost two children, one that we had to put out to nurse in the country where he was not well cared for, the other we decided to keep at home, and the foul air of Paris, combined with the poor health he inherited from his mother, prevented him from developing. If we have succeeded in raising the third, it is only because we were in somewhat easier circumstances by dint of economy and industry. Today we are very happy and free from anxiety, but we are forty years old and we have suffered terribly. Our earlier years were a constant struggle, and often a martyrdom. Such is the life of the petty bourgeois of Paris. Madame la Comtesse, that of the poor artist is even worse, for his profession is less reliable than mine. People constantly have matters in dispute, which cause them to have recourse to the solicitor, but they don't always need pictures, and most people never need them. They are pure luxuries. Julian will not make a small fortune as his father did. His character and talent are even more highly esteemed, perhaps. But he has not the attractive frivolity, the taste for society, and the brilliant external qualities which cause a certain sort of people to become infatuated with an artist, bring him out, 
sing his praises, and make him shine resplendent. Let me tell you that my Uncle Andre's talent, genuine as it was, would never have extricated him from poverty if he had not been a fine table singer, a great man for clever remarks and piquant anecdotes, and if certain influential but volatile ladies had not from time to time made him unfaithful to his wife, whom he adored nonetheless, but of whom he said under his breath, innocently enough, that he must needs deceive her a little in her own interest. You lose color. Julian will not follow that example of a time which has gone by, but it will be of no use for Julian to produce masterpieces. He will remain poor. Society does not become infatuated with modest merit and does not travel about in quest of unknown virtue. His marriage with you will make a certain noise, a little scandal which will bring him into notice. His father's marriage had that result at the time, but, once more I say, times have changed. The world is more austere and more hypocritical today than in La Pompadour's day. Then, too, the same sort of adventure doesn't succeed twice. People will say that youngster is very presumptuous to try to mimic his father, and you will raise up more enemies than patrons for him. There will be a great outcry against you. I don't suppose that the Marchioness will try to have you put in a convent and him in the Bastille for the crime of misalliance. She has no rights over you, but she will injure you much more by crying you down, and you will not have the rigors of persecution to make you interesting. People know you. They know that you are rigidly virtuous. The reaction will be all the more violent and implacable. The old prudes will go about everywhere saying that, as such marriages threaten to become common in society, they cannot be endured and must be severely condemned. Even the liberally minded, some of whom are Julian's patrons now, will not dare to defend you. They too belong to society today. They are no longer persecuted, but are caressed and flattered, and Paris is still quivering over the triumph awarded Monsieur de Voltaire after his long exile. People laugh at Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who believed that he was still a victim of the machinations of bigots, and who might have lived in peace and honor, so they say, if his heart had not been soured and his mind diseased. The philosophers have the upper hand today. They are no longer over-solicitous to fight against prejudice, and the remnant of the great crusade of free thinkers will not mend its pen and sharpen its tongue to sustain your cause against the outcry of the salons. All these cowardly blows, all these insults will eventually fall on Julian's heart. He will live in never-ending anxiety, always on the qui-vive. He will fall out with all his friends. He may fight with some of them. Enough, enough, Marcel, said Julie, weeping. I see that I have been mad, that I have been led by the counsel of a selfish passion, or by my absolute ignorance of social necessities. I see that Julian's life would be made burdensome by public reprobation, that life would be a never-ending source of danger and unhappiness. Ah, Marcel, you have broken my heart, 
but you have done your duty, and I esteem you the more. Let us go and tell Julian that I mean to break. Mon Dieu, how shall I tell him that? Julian will not believe you. He will laugh at your generous pretense. He will tell you that he longs to suffer for you. He is courageous and strong, and I have no doubt that he adores you. If you consult him, his first exclamation will be, Love at any price. Love and persecution. Love and poverty. He does not doubt himself and his mother, who is equal to him in the matter of courage and unselfishness, will assist him to sacrifice everything. But imagine Julian a year or two hence, when he sees his mother suffer. Only by the most extraordinary efforts is he able now to shield her from the horrors of poverty. And in spite of him, in spite of herself, in spite of everything, she suffers on that account, you may be sure. Madame Thierry is an enthusiast, in no wise a stoic. She was brought up to do nothing, and she doesn't know how to do anything but knit and read, sitting comfortably in her easy chair. Moreover, her health is frail. She is not like my wife. She would not sit up till midnight mending her son's shirts. Her beautiful hands are no better acquainted with fatigue than yours. What will happen then, when Julian has a wife and children? He will blame himself for your miseries, and if remorse ever gains a foothold in that proud heart, farewell to courage, and perhaps to talent. Enough, I tell you, my dear Marcel. Advise me, guide me, command, for I surrender. Must I not see him or speak to him? No, you must certainly not, my dear Countess. He must know nothing of what has happened, and Monsieur Antoine's gifts must fall into his hands without any suspicion on his part of the terms on which our uncle became tractable. Otherwise, he would be quite capable of refusing them. Marcel, said the Countess, rising and ringing the bell, I must leave this house instantly and never return. A servant appeared. Send for a cab, she said, and send Camille to me. I shall carry nothing away, she said to Marcel. You must pay my servants, collect my most necessary effects, and send them to me. But where are you going? To a convent outside Paris. I don't care where, provided that nobody but you knows where I am. Camille appeared. Julie bade her fetch her cloak, and when she had left the room again, continued. You see, my friend, if I remain here a moment longer, Madame Thierry, being anxious on account of what happened at her house, will come to make inquiries, and even if I should feign before her, this evening, ah, yes, this evening, Julian would wait for me in the garden, and when I failed to appear, he would not be able to refrain from coming to my window and tapping on it. I should not have the strength to leave him in the grasp of mortal anxiety, and I could not lie to him. No, no, let us go. I hear the cab coming into the courtyard. Come, do not give me time to lose what little courage I have. Marcel felt that she was right. He offered her his arm. Come, madame, he said. God inspires you, and he will support you. They drove about at random at first. 
the countess having given the cabman the address of one convent, then of another, having no idea where she really wished to go. At last Marcel persuaded her to go to the Ursulines at Shalott, where he had a cousin who was a nun, and he waited until she was settled there, himself paying the price of her lodging and board for a week, reserving the right to prolong the arrangement if the countess were properly treated. Julie took the name of Madame de Lange, and Marcel's cousin, whom he enjoined to commend her warmly to the superior, was not taken into the secret. As Julie took refuge in the convent as a lodger, she was allowed to detain Marcel in her room in order to give him her instructions. I absolutely refuse, she said, to accept Monsieur Antoine's benefactions in any shape. They were hateful to me, and I no longer need any consideration at his hands. Let him pay himself in full as he is now my only creditor, as he has everything of mine in his hands. I have nothing left but my twelve hundred francs a year, and, as I must live alone hereafter, I need nothing more. Do not let him leave me my furniture. Do not let him send me my diamonds. I will not receive them. He may draw up with his own hands the agreement I am to sign." pledging myself never to marry. I will sign it in exchange for the gift to Madame Thierry of the house at Sevres, and an allowance which you will do your best in my name to make as large as possible. You will also demand that neither Madame Thierry nor her son be informed of the truth with respect to my action. You will tell them that I have gone away, that I cannot, that I do not wish to receive them again, because, oh, mon Dieu, what will you tell them? I have no idea. Tell them whatever you can invent that is least cruel, but most irrevocable, for we must not leave them any of the hopes deferred which makes the heart sick, and render the final awakening the more bitter. Tell them, no, tell them nothing. Alas, alas, I have no strength left to think or decide. I have no strength left for anything. I will reflect, said Marcel. I will think it over as I return. I leave you in despair, but I must go to get your clothes. I must prevent Julian from being panic-stricken and losing his head at the first moment, and I must reassure your servants, who would otherwise wait for you and perhaps engage in compromising comments or investigations when you fail to return. Come, madam, be heroic. Calm yourself. I will return this evening or sooner if I can. I will try to bring you some consoling news from the pavilion. I must succeed in deceiving Julian, although I have no more idea than you how I shall succeed in doing it. Au revoir. Wait for me. Do not write to anyone. We must not contradict each other. You will weep bitterly. I have caused you so much suffering, poor woman, and now I must leave you alone. It is horrible. As he spoke, Marcel unconsciously shed tears. Seeing his afflictions and his unselfish devotion, Julie urged him to go, 
and strove to display an energy which she did not possess. As soon as she was alone, she locked her door, threw herself on the poor shabby bed which had been prepared for her, buried her face in the pillow, stifling her sobs, wringing her hands, and abandoning herself to her grief so completely that she lost all consciousness of the place where she was and all memory of the events which had driven her thither so abruptly. Marcel, returning to the cab, wiped his streaming eyes, blamed himself for his weakness, and argued the facts anew. When you decide to do a thing, he said to himself, you must do it. End of section 28